This is the Lightning Junkies podcast with your host, Chaz. On this week's episode of the podcast, we have Christian Decker, and we're talking about Anyprev Out, L2, Channel Factories, and whatever else we can uh, get up to. Before that, a message from your friends at the Lightning Junkies podcast. If you feel like this podcast is a value in your Bitcoin lightning journey, please consider supporting us by listening to us on Breeze Wallet or any of the other value for value apps that you can find at newpodcastapps.com. For other ways to support the podcast, please visit lightningjunkies.net forward slash support. There you find the places to listen and subscribe to the podcast as well as a few different ways to send us Bitcoin or Bitcoin over the Lightning Network. Help keep this podcast ad-free and support us today. Now on with the show. How are you doing today, Christian? I'm very well. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So when I was kind of thinking out, you know, the outline of what we, I wanted to talk, to talk about today, I was kind of like writing down that you were the final boss of the Lightning Network because <laughs> it just seems that like you have your you have your fingers and all of the pies here. You seem to write all of the, not all of the important papers, but quite a few of these important papers. Um, you were around um, in Bitcoin very early on. Is that right? Yeah, I basically stumbled over the paper in uh, 2009 uh, while doing my my master's and uh, sort of had similar interests to the to the topic. And so I picked up this this hobby of looking into Bitcoin and looking into how improving it and uh, got told off by Satoshi himself. So uh, that's an achievement. But uh, yeah, I stuck with it ever since. And uh, now that hobby became my full time job. Yeah. I'm not going to spend too much time in like your history here, but I'm I am kind of just curious. What exactly about Bitcoin kind of caught your interest in those early years? So I was doing my master's in distributed systems and distributed computing, and uh, so it was it was aligned with my interest topic wise. Uh, I was looking into into BitTorrent and peer to peer sharing, and uh, obviously at some point doing a peer to peer currency comes up and. Uh, there just wasn't any good solution, and suddenly there is this paper that uh, nobody nobody saw, and I stumbled over it, and I found it interesting. Uh, quite uh, quite some room for improvement in my mind. Uh, I was I was cocky and young, so uh, but I later learned to to sort of uh, that that every decision had had its reason in in the paper. So yeah, that's that's mainly it. What were the things you wanted to improve, just quickly? <laughs> ah, mainly the, um, so what, what gold me, uh, got me told off by Satoshi was basically that uh, I was looking at this network that was randomly forming. Everybody was randomly opening connections to other people. And the idea that I had was basically to introduce structure uh, into the network by using something called a uh, hypergraph uh, network where we could very efficiently exchange information in the network by just uh, by just forwarding this information along uh, along the optimal path in the network. And I later learned that uh, basically any kind of structure also gives rise to the ability for attackers to basically position himself in a network and truncate information. That was when when Satoshi told me that I'm an idiot and I shouldn't I shouldn't continue working on this. Um, but I did, and now 
uh, we're working uh, on improving the Bitcoin network and the Lightning network. So, very interesting. So, was was that kind of idea you had a very primitive form of anything you kind of did later on, or is it just totally separated and not related at all? We did look. At- uh, into a couple of things uh, that were related. Uh, basically, my my full uh, my PhD was basically based on improving the um, information propagation in the Bitcoin network, and basically ensure that there is as a small a delay as possible between sending out a transaction and it appearing on all nodes, uh, in order to decrease the chances of having double spends or um, uh, wasting uh, wasting mining efficiency on these delays, which might give rise to to attackers that are selfishly mining. Um, so we continued working on this kind of uh, of problem, but uh, I pretty much abandoned the uh, proposed solution that I had at the time uh, quick, pretty quickly because the the ability for an attacker to position themselves in uh, in the network is sort of a no de- uh, no go in this uh, scenario how did you move from you know working on bitcoin itself to starting to work on this new lightning network thing Basically, I set out when I started my PhD to um, to tackle a couple of problems, among which uh, was the security and the scalability and the privacy of uh, of Bitcoin. And uh, in the end, uh, the scalability was the one that sort of caught my eye the most, and was also the most interesting in my in my mind, at least. And uh, we tried a couple of things where we did uh, go in towards on uh, on chain scaling. But uh, at some point, we had to realize that on-chain scaling is fundamentally flawed um, simply because there, there is no way to scale to infinite number of, uh, of participants uh, without a, sta- uh, a complexity explosion at, uh, at some point. So either you constrain the participants uh, into a smaller set or select a subset from the participants to run the actual consensus protocol or you try to reduce the load on the on the uh, blockchain itself, and then try to build on top of it, and that's basically what what we ended up with is is creating off-chain scale, uh, scalability solutions. One of the uh, one of the ones that uh, that we proposed was called a duplex micropayment channel, which was a contemporary to the Lightning Network paper, and. Uh, we got a bit unlucky and we got scooped while our paper was under review. Uh, Joseph and Taj basically just uh, published their paper on their website. And um, then I decided after my PhD to basically join the Lightning team and uh, uh, start working on, uh, on this network implementation um, in the hopes of making it, making it more usable, uh, more useful to the, to the wider community than having two separate competing networks, one based on my idea and one based on, on the Lightning Network paper. And uh, yeah, been working on Lightning ever since. I remember reading and I probably hearing you uh, talk about it, as you kind of mentioned and alluded to there, that there is a bit of like a prehistory to the, uh, you know, there the Apoon and uh, Taj Dryja paper. Um, where, like, I believe uh, uh, the original Bitcoin had some kind of very primitive payment channel implementation that was broken or something. There was some other thing that came out, I think, 
in 2011. That was some kind of primitive form of a lightning channel. The one that you came out with, the 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 lightning network paper that I already mentioned from Poon and Dreija. Um, and then did you did you do another version of the channel, like of, of lightning channels later as well? Oh yeah, basically in uh, 2018, we published uh, yet another uh, construction for, for these off-chain uh, protocols called L2, um, which uh, tries to take the core um, core innovation on a core uh, mechanism that is used by, by Lightning to basically renegotiate a new state and replace it with something that is more fle- uh, flexible. And uh, um, the way that the Lightning Network currently works is that if we both have a channel open and uh, we, we have some funds on these channels, then uh, uh, basically we both need to agree about who owns what part of this uh, of this uh, of these funds and uh, making an update basically means that we discard the old state basically if if initially i had 10 bitcoins and you had zero on this channel then a new state would be for example one bitcoin for you and nine bitcoin for me but that means that we now have to revoke the old state right i should not be able to basically take the 10 to me and zero to you state and go on uh, onto the blockchain and enforce that and the way that is achieved in uh, in Lightning uh, currently is that you threaten me to penalize me if I were to misbehave by basically stealing all of my funds. And uh, that has a couple of downsides, uh, one of which is uh, the issue that we can't really take backups because if we forget about the latest state and we then try to go to the blockchain, that means that we inadvertently cheat, for example. Um, and the way that we tackle that in, uh, in the L2 paper is basically to say, hey, uh, instead of, uh, of punishing you because you forgot the, uh, that the latest state is, is a new state, um, we basically just override uh, your attempt to go to settle on chain uh, by uh, rectifying this. So, so basically, you can imagine that the blockchain is, uh, is the bank teller. And uh, the two of us basically have uh, an agreement that we will we will go to this bank teller and show them uh, show them uh, how to split the funds on a piece of paper that is signed by both of us. And the bank teller, instead of uh, instead of basically uh, acting on the first sheet of paper they see, uh, says, "Okay, I see that this is signed by both of us, and it has uh, sequence number one." But I will wait for 24 hours. Maybe Chaz comes along and has one with sequence number two. And then, um, indeed, you go to the bank teller and you you show your piece of paper, which is represents the state and is signed by both of us and has sequence number two. And the bank teller says, okay, yeah, this, this supersedes the old one. Um, and we basically throw away the old one and he now starts uh, a new period of, uh, of settlement where he waits for me to show up and basically say, uh, waits for me to show up and say, okay, here's a newer state yet. So instead of penalizing, we now supersede the state with something that we agreed upon. Um, so backups are non-fatal, basically. So I definitely want to come back to L2. I just want to kind of take a couple steps back here in order to work, work back up to it, if you don't mind. 
really briefly, how similar would you say is the original end sequence to L2? Is it at all similar or is it just a kind of analogy and not really that accurate? It is pretty similar in a certain sense because the original idea of having the end sequence number in the uh, transactions basically is uh, what was in the original client created by Satoshi himself. And the idea was basically that while a transaction is floating around in a network and is yet unconfirmed, um, you may create a new version and a miner is supposed to basically uh, take the uh, old version, compare it with a new version. And if the new version has a higher sequence number, then they were supposed to throw away the old one and uh, and keep the new one and eventually confirm this new one, which is very similar to what I just explained with a bank teller uh, sort of image, right? The problem with the end sequence number is that it was not enforceable. Um, so there was no way for us to force a miner to throw away the old one and keep the new one. Even worse, there wasn't even a way for us to prove that a miner uh, didn't adhere to this, this protocol um, because they might they can always just pretend, oh, I didn't see anything that was newer. Um, and, and so you as an attacker might go to the miner and so basically say, hey, uh, I'm, I'm about to lose 10 Bitcoins. Uh, please confirm this old version where I have these 10 Bitcoins and I'll share basically the stolen funds with you. And so um, this unenforceability made it really, really bad for, uh, for this kind of uh, rapid replacement of, uh, of transaction versions. And so we basically used the, uh, the existing fields in the transaction, the in-sequence uh, field in, in transactions nowadays is used for the check sequence verify opcode. So we reused the existing field for another use, uh, which does not match what Satoshi had in mind. But uh, uh, since that mechanism was broken anyway, it gave us an opportunity to basically make use of space that would otherwise be, uh, be wasted. Going a little bit more into L2 and what we would need to to do in order to actually get it uh, working today. Um, so you wrote the original version of BIP 118, then called SICASH no input. Um, Anthony Towns has since uh, rewritten it to include um, Taproot um, as the mechanism of implementing it. Hopefully, not. Uh, saying that wrong, but um, but it's now called Sikhash any prev out. Could you explain um, how how Sikhash uh, any prev out formerly Sikhash no input um, allows L two essentially? Yes, fundamentally the the idea of uh, of having Sikhash no input even predates my own write up. I just uh, picked it out of the of the lightning paper uh, where I first learned about it and basically. Uh, made it more concrete by writing the actual text. So it's definitely not my idea. But the way that we use it in L2 is uh, is very novel. Uh, it basically allows us to have the latest state, uh, uh, the, the latest state transaction that represents our latest agreement, um, be able to be attached to any of the prior states. So we can imagine that uh, a... Um, an instance of the L2 protocol results in a, sequ uh, uh, in a linear 
chain of transactions, each representing an, a, a state that we agreed upon. Like I said before, if we start with 10 Bitcoins in a channel, and then transfer one Bitcoin to you, the second state is nine Bitcoins to me and one Bitcoin to you. And uh, then we can go on and basically create this long chain of states where, where each uh, transaction represents something that we agreed upon. Now, the, this long chain, we could replay that on the blockchain, but it wouldn't really give us anything because we had N states and we then have to, uh, to send these N states onto the blockchain, each costing us fees, each requiring some time to be confirmed and so on and so forth. And the basic idea of L2 is basically that we could skip some of these intermediate states. I mean, they're, they're not important for us. The important part for us is that the latest state eventually gets confirmed on the blockchain itself. And so where Sikash no input or any prev out comes into play is that we'd like to have a single transaction which represents the latest state and make, uh, make it so that we can attach it to any of the prior states. Now, the difficulty here is that each transaction points to exactly which transaction created the outputs that we are spending. And uh, by doing this, we would basically enforce having to confirm the entire chain of transaction, which could be hundreds of transactions um, in the same order that we, that we uh, agreed upon them. Sirkash, any prev out allows us to basically not add this uh, at the specific output that we uh, that we are spending from uh, into the signature itself. So we remove the commitment to which output we are spending and make that free floating. So we now can take this transaction and rewrite it in such a way that it now points to the first state or the second state or the whatever ends up uh, being published on the blockchain, uh, we can rewrite the latest transaction in such a way that we can just attach it to, to it. And so we just short circuit from, the, uh, from whatever state we have on chain, we uh, short circuit to the final state and so override whatever happens with the, uh, what would, would have happened with the, with the old state that happened to end up on chain. Before we kind of jump more into what L2 would allow, I kind of want to briefly talk about any prev outs a little bit more here. Would you say, um, well, the kind of BIP-118 soft fork itself, do you see it being uh, at all controversial? Like Taproot was slightly controversial, um, but not too much in the end. Do you foresee you know, any prev out being similar at all, it being, you know, it taking a long time or do you seeing it being relatively benign with relatively no downsides? I think mostly the, um, the points that were brought up during, uh, during the normal review process of BIP 118, we're concentrating mostly on the fact that we now have a new Sikash flag that might give away some of the uses of the, uh, uh, of the transaction that we that we might end up, uh, and uh, and so this this would give rise to basically being able to profile some uses. So that might uh, that is a criticism that we have heard. However, in combination with Taproot, which finally is activated, so um, or it's locked in, um, uh, that that is much less of a concern because. 
the point where we would re uh, reveal that the uh, that we signed with a special signature is actually in the tap taproot branch. So at that point, we already reveal the uh, the uh, output script that we committed to, and so that is all. Uh, that is we we now are revealing the use case when we would anyway be revealing our use cases. So that that criticism is probably no longer valid. Um, what else was brought up? I think that was that was the main concern. Um, there is a bit of uh, uh, of uh, concern about uh, about this allowing for replay attacks. Um, however, the 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 whole use case for Sikash any prevout is replay attacks. I mean, we are reintroducing some form of malleability because we want the transactions to be malleable um, and be able to rewrite where these funds come from, um, and so. It's like it's like saying the stove is hot. Uh, that's a downside, but we have a stove because we want to heat something up, right? And so, Sikash any prevout is definitely a Sikash uh, flag that is uh, that is very specific to a couple of use cases and not something that you should be signing all of your transactions with. Um, but uh, if you if you opt into this functionality, it's because you need that functionality, right? Um, I think it should be pretty much uncontroversial at this point um, that we want something like that. And a couple of use cases uh, besides L2 have, uh, have come up, which are really interesting. And I think are making the point even more obvious that this is flexibility that we want. And this is a building block that we want to have in, in Bitcoin and in Lightning to, to basically build more advanced features and uh, improve the uh, the current systems. Let's go ahead and kind of um, move back to L2 and what it would allow here. Um, so you already kind of um, talked about how it would essentially get rid of penalty transactions, get rid of intermediate states. So things are a little bit leaner. You know, we're not keeping all the old states. We only need the, the, the latest one. But I guess the most interesting a thing that would possibly come out of L2, or not possibly, would, that would come out of L2, would be multi-party channels or, or channel factories. Um, now, I, when I was reading the paper that you helped to uh, co-write there, um, I, it, it was really well written, so I kind of understood the kind of layman structure of it all. But I guess it's still hard for me to really imagine and really kind of work out how everything is going to work. Before we get into all that, do you want to kind of just give a quick rundown on what multi, uh, multi-party channels are? Maybe it's kind of obvious from the name, but... So the core idea is that uh, in Lightning, we are basically joining two people together um, with, a, with an off-chain contract that uh, is there to manage some shared funds, right? Um, with the... We basically fund a channel, and from there on, we have to agree of, uh, on what happens to those funds, who owns which part of these funds. And uh, with Lightning Penalty, the existing mechanism, this uh, the size of our group managing or collaboratively managing these funds are, is basically limited to two people, exactly because we need to have a remediation when, when one of our two parties uh, misbehaves 
then the other one can penalize whoever is is uh, uh, is uh, misbehaving. Now, if we remove the penalty mechanism, we can go to a uh, to a we we can open up this group to more people. Uh, so basically, we could have uh, four, five, twelve. 99 people all pooling their funds and collaboratively managing who owns which part of this and building additional uh, additional infrastructure on top of it by saying okay yeah you are now you uh, there's two of uh, of you you basically separate some of these funds into a uh, into a separate channel between the two of you and now only the two of you need to need to communicate if you want to close this channel, you basically go back to the uh, to the rest of the group and say, "Hey, we agreed that uh, from the initial funds of ten bitcoins, um, we we now split it fifty fifty, right, um, or whatever you agreed upon." And so, by using the L two uh, update mechanism, we can have these really big groups of of people pooling their funds, collaboratively managing them. And to the rest of the network, the, to the rest of the blockchain, this all looks like a uh, looks like a single multi-sig. Or with Taproot, it actually looks like a normal single sig, uh, where uh, these ninety-nine participants are basically aggregating all of their signatures to uh, to decide what uh, what happens with these funds. And so that allows us to to. Uh, Get much much more flexibility in, uh, into this this whole thing because unlike the Lightning Network as we know it today, we can we can actually send any funds f- inside of this of this multi-party channel to any participant of this multi-party channel without having to route indirectly through other uh, other channels, and so it basically becomes this micro blockchain that is handled off-chain. And can be settled at any point in time back to the blockchain itself, and has the same security and uh, uh, as as the underlying blockchain, but has the same speed as any off-chain contract can uh, can have. So we can actually update the state that we are collaboratively managing at the same speed that we can actually communicate and exchange signatures. So it is a bit uh, the best of both worlds, so to speak. I was kind of reading this paper and I found it kind of remarkable because it seems like this is like the real vision for scaling Bitcoin because like I I see how much scale can really happen with these channel factories. I I think there's a lot of questions on how these things would would, would really work out in real life. But um, it seems like two of the things that you can really use to kind of... um, accelerate scaling even more than than lightning does is you know with these channel factories but these channel factories allow you to you know if you have these like 99 participants or 16 participants whatever they can um, agree to open up uh, two-party channels on top of that multi-party channel can you make sure i'm not saying that totally wrong please (laughs) yeah that's that's absolutely correct i mean what we can do in these larger groups is to split off into smaller groups that that may run any uh, basically any other off-chain protocol as well. Um, incidentally, it's the reason why I'm calling them off-chain protocols and not layer two, because well, if you introduce an intermediate layer like like a channel factory or a multi-party channel, then it, this numbering basically goes out the window. 
And, uh, and so if we, if we have a group of 99 people or however many there are in our, in our, um, vicinity, um, or in this multi-party channel, um, and we want just to trade between the two of us, we can, we can split off a couple of funds by creating an output that is co-owned by the two of us in this multi-party channel. And from there on, it's just the two of us who have to sign off on stuff. And only the two of us will learn what happens with this, uh, with this separate channel, so to speak. And, uh, if we, if we happen to, um, to want to close this, this sub channel, so, uh, then, then we basically just go back to the group at large and say, Hey, this is what we agreed upon. Please add these funds back into our general pool. And, uh, we can, we can bootstrap another channel with other participants. So there is a lot of flexibility that, uh, that we earn by, by basically having this, this off-chain protocol, um, layer two basically that uh, uh, where we uh, where we manage these funds in a larger group and then we split off into smaller groups as we go along and then we remerge as our separate uh, contracts basically um, either expire or are not useful anymore we go back to the bigger group and, and set up something else and all of this happens without having any interaction with the blockchain itself and so it is very uh, very much con uh, conserving the limited capacity that we have in the Bitcoin blockchain itself. Something else that would take, you know, because I, th I think that's really amazing, being able to do things purely off chain. So I would assume there is that speed benefit as well as not needing to touch uh, Bitcoin's base chain at all. Um, that just seems like that would give you a massive amount of scale, you know, assuming everything's working on the channel factory layer. But then there is something else here that you also mentioned in the paper that would give even more scale to the situation and that uh, Schnorr and uh, signature aggregation. Do you want to explain that uh, kind of briefly here? Oh, yes, absolutely. So. All of these protocols are basically limited by is limiting the number of participants by putting limits on the size of transactions. So in, in Bitcoin itself, the maximum transaction size is something like 10,000 10, bytes. And uh, so the number of signatures we can add to a single transaction um, is, is limited by these 10,000 bytes. If we were to have more than, uh, I, if I remember correctly, it was 15 participants, then the sheer number of, uh, the, the sheer size of the signatures that, that we would all have to contribute to a transaction would mean that this transaction no longer adheres to this uh, transaction size limit. Um, and so that, that is because every participant needs to contribute a signature and the way that that the check multisig operation uh, works in in the Bitcoin script means that each participant has to add both their public key and a matching signature for when for every time they sign off on on something. And what Schnorr allows us, which is going to be deployed by by Taproot, is it removes this check uh, check multisig operator. For a far more flexible version, uh, which uh, where the signatures get all uh, all get summed up, 
uh, instead of being present individually in the script, we basically just publish the sum of the signatures and we sum up the, uh, the public keys just like we would uh, in, in mathematics. And, uh, and what ends up in the, uh, in the Bitcoin script itself and therefore in the transaction is a single public key and a single signature. Uh, independently of how many participants have contributed their uh, signature to the uh, uh, when when they wanted to sign off on on what the latest status, and so this frees us from this uh, this constraint that we have to that we that the number of signatures has to fit into the into the Bitcoin transaction because we end up with a very simple transaction which just looks like a single sig. It's one public key and one uh, one signature. And it also hides the uh, the use of the output that we are using uh, from being recognized as being a multi-party channel, which is which is very nice because suddenly this this uh, this whole off-chain construction doesn't leave a uh, a trace in the uh, in the blockchain itself, which can be recognized by an observer. It just looks like. Oh, somebody sent some funds into into a single sig, and then they split it up in some random fashion. So, do you think channel factories are essentially how Bitcoin scales into the future? Like we have Lightning Network, there's some upper bound how much it can help scale. I don't know what that number is. I'm not going to try to <laughs> say a, a particular number. But um, obviously, there's a limit there, and Channel Factories helps to greatly expand that. But do you think it's going to be how people actually use Bitcoin? Is it going to be limited to like an Uncle Jim situation where, you know, like I'm a person that's, you know, that might get into this stuff, whereas my friends and family might, you know, be involved in the Channel Factory, but I handle all the work for them, or maybe we're on, we have channels, uh, sub channels or something? what have you. Um, how do you see this actually working in practice? Do you think people are going to be using channel factories primarily in the future? How do you see it working out? I would certainly hope that that, it, that it is being used in some, uh, some near future. Um, I can't really say whether it will take on or whether this, this whole thing is, is too, too far out and nobody will, will find it useful or whether there is something better coming along. Um, it is most certainly not the last word on scalability. This this also bumps up against some limitations at some point, um, namely the number of UTXOs that we can create or destroy in uh, in a certain period of time in Bitcoin. But it it does give us a some some more room to grow, and uh, I, I would definitely be very happy if it if it gets uh, adopted and if it gets implemented and if people find it useful and from there on we will continue to make improvements and incrementally get more and more people on board it and uh, try to try to remove the limitations that we that we are left with anthony uh, uh wanted me to ask anthony ronning wanted me to ask would channel factories help with privacy at all, or would that just not really be involved here? It would help if um, if you basically are having having bigger groups that co own uh, the uh, the funds in a channel. Also means that you have to have fewer indirections. Most of the issues that we currently encounter 
also regarding privacy come from the fact that we are involving other channels outside of the agreement between the two of us um, when we are trying to send a payment to some remote uh, destination. If we can, uh, if we can group, uh, group the people that we are going to interact with in the same multi-party channel and, uh, and potentially even uh, uh, then build up uh, some sub-channels in that, that means that we don't have to involve outside parties um, to do our end-to-end transfer. This gives us uh, this gives us more security as to the funds not be uh, not getting stuck somewhere. It uh, means that we don't interact with uh, people that are just forwarding for us, and it uh, it means that we are much quicker in transferring these funds as well. The downside, of course, is now that we're telling we're telling a larger group uh, that we are transferring one Bitcoin from me to you, basically. Um, so I, I guess it's uh, it's something to be seen whether this uh, this is something that improves overall the privacy or whether it uh, it reduces the overall uh, privacy. I think in combination with channel factories, we can. Uh, or with, with sub-channels, we can improve the privacy quite a bit because basically I just open a sub-channel with my destination, then perform some interactions, and only at the, at the final stage I will go back to the, uh, to the multi-party channel and settle there. Um, so it, it very much is like uh, as if we could open a point-to-point channel on the Lightning Network uh, on a whim, basically. In that sense, like, do you think that, you know, Lightning Network, I think uh, people have realized over time that there is a bit of a, of like implicit trust involved in when you're choosing your counterparties. Um, I think that's obviously a bit more intensified here. So would you say that essentially that... If, if I were to go out and, you know, be wanting to start a channel factory, I would need to find, you know, Bitcoiners that I really, really trust to not be, you know, griefing dicks, let's say, and not just like go offline on purpose in order to force everyone to, you know, to the base chain, essentially. Um, am I kind of getting that right, that we're going to have to have that kind of trust model on channel factories here? Absolutely. I mean that that's the main issue that we have by uh, when when creating really large multi-party channels is that we now require sign off from all of the participants and even if only one goes down then we can't make any progress unless we created sub-channels ahead of time. So what happens is basically that as soon as one party disappears the the multi-party channel itself freezes. But whatever we built on top of it, whether that's a sub-channel or an HTLC or you name it, that remains functional, basically. That is something that is, that is very interesting in, in L2 overall, is that we can basically initiate a shutdown of the, uh, of the off-chain channel and still be operational. We can still perform updates to it while we are waiting for the uh, for the multi-party channel to be settled uh, on chain. And uh, so we might lose the multi-party channel, but whatever we built on top of it 
still remains functional. And that, in my mind, is the main uh, reason why we we would want to create subchannels is because we sort of uh, separate out uh, the uh, the point-to-point relationships between the sender and receiver and basically hide these updates from the rest of the multi-party channel. But at the same time, we would also ensure that this subchannel remains functional, even if the if the multi-party channel is frozen. And who knows? Maybe maybe the participant that dropped off comes back, and suddenly this multi-party channel falls up, and we can we can start uh, closing and opening subchannels again, and we regain this flexibility that we've lost because well somebody dropped off. Of course, if there, there is, there is, like you mentioned, a griefing asshole. Then uh, they would basically not sign off on a subchannel being created, and yeah, that that would probably be very problematic. That's kind of fascinating that there are ways kind of around that. Even I, I, f- I find it very interesting to kind of map all this out because it seems like it's until we have the stuff in our hands, it almost feels like we're not going to really get all all the pieces in place here but um are there any other kind of downsides or things to look out for in relation to channel factories that maybe i'm just not aware of quite yet besides the ones we've already mentioned here i think channel factories can be can be quite easily mapped to back to the channels created uh, channels created on chain directly so it it basically is just deferring the on chain creation of our sub channel and so um, any functionality that the that the factory has is uh, is basically the only part where we need to be concerned about having downsides and this locking up is basically the only one that i can think of at the moment at least <laughs> Pretty sure it is, actually. Is there anything else you would want to say on channel factories? I think that's pretty much all I had on that side. Is there anything we missed? I would totally love to see them at some point. <laughs> Fair enough. Me too. I, I really want to see how they play out. Um, because it seems to me like years before, not years before, but a while before I ever started this podcast, and I'm like arguing with people on Twitter as I'm one to do, unfortunately. Um, I would kind of use this argument that Bitcoin is going to scale with these channel factories, even though I didn't understand them in the least back then. I, I kind of do barely now, thankfully. But it it just seems like the way to go. You know, like Instead of raising the block size, let's try to make Bitcoin as efficient as possible, where we make, you know, we have lightning, and then we make opening and closing lightning channels stupidly cheap instead of worrying about the block size like that just seems the way to go here um do you have any comments in general on you know taking that path versus raising the block size and not really you know making bitcoin more efficient yeah i mean i do share the the um the belief that uh, that Going for efficiency and maybe not the not the once in a lifetime big changes, but going for a more incremental route is the way to go because it's uh, it puts the least pressure on uh, on participants in the network to upgrade to uh, to basically invest more and um, the downside of of requiring 
uh, investments from users is that at some point you just push them out and, and sort of you become this um, this smaller group that is that is now managing the consensus that Bitcoin offers. Um, and that's that's obviously an ideological cho- choice, but it's, uh, it is something that that I very much uh, agree with is that if we want uh, if we want to uh, this to become a, an accessible system to everybody, we should make sure that we don't push out um, users that may not have the resources to run uh, to run a more costly uh, node in the network. So, yeah, I definitely do agree with with this uh, with this path to scalability rather than going for data center size nodes that, uh, yeah, they can push more transactions through, but if it's just a small cabal of users, then what, what is the real innovation here? It's, it's not, uh, it's not really attractive to me as well. Just to kind of ask, do you think in some far future where we've um, arrested a great deal of efficiency out of Bitcoin here. Um, do you think that there's a, some non-zero chance that the the block size or block weight um, is is raised at all? Yeah, I do think that that at some point uh, we might pick up this discussion again, and at that point, hopefully, we will we will have exhausted all of our possibilities to to gain incremental improvements. Um, in my mind, the block size increase is, uh, is not something that is that is an absolute no-no, but uh, it is sort of the last option we should consider exactly because it has this cost of maybe alienating some of the participants in the network and pushing them out. It does seem like I, I think I can kind of understand where a lot of the big blocker proponents think happened in the last couple of years in 2017 time period and generally around then um, where it feels like this other narrative one where it, it's harder to grok all this lightning stuff and all the stuff on top where why not just change one parameter guys just change one <laughs> line of code we're done Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it's a simple solution, uh, but as simple solutions often are, they are too simple. Um, there are consequences to uh, to these simple solutions that might that might not have been considered. And uh, we are very much we as as Bitcoiners are or should be very much focused on on inclusivity inclusivity and not. Uh, not going for the first simple option we have. Not scale by any means possible, but you know, let's let's get scale and not get everyone off the network in the meantime. Yeah, not not go for the big numbers because big numbers are nice to see, but go for thought out uh, uh, thought out solutions that that actually are maintainable and can be can be carried over in the future. I recently talked to Rusty, and as you probably know, Rusty used to work as a Linux kernel dev. Do you see Bitcoin being very similar to Linux in that way, where we're being very conservative and trying to build out for the kind of long vision versus let's copy Windows and stuff everything we possibly can in there? I think it's a it's a very much thought out process that is uh, that at sometimes looks very slow. I mean, I've I've been frustrated myself a couple of times because my 
proposals went nowhere um, and uh, my pull requests were rejected. Um, but for good reason. Uh, the, it's it's very slow but measured pro, uh, progress that we are making. And every decision is well thought out. And sometimes we do get it wrong, but most of the times we, we get it right. And we, we as Bitcoin developers should have this forward-looking um, vision, basically, that uh, uh, towards which we work. And yeah, I guess in, in that sense, it is very much like, like Linux. Uh, with the with the difference that we don't have a, benef- a benevolent dictator for life, it's a very much sprawling system where where gaining consensus isn't uh, appealing to a, to a higher authority uh, in the form of Linus. But it, it it is a very messy process. It's slow. It uh, it it takes time and. It often isn't easy to grok where things are going, but it is slow and on uh, uh, deliberately. It, uh, we need to take our time to really investigate the uh, the pros and cons of every single proposal and make sure that it is future proof. And uh, so, while frustrating at times, uh, it is uh, it is very much the process that we've chosen, and I think it's a process that will end up giving us the the best uh, the best solutions that we can have so uh, one other uh, major uh, thing that can can happen with l2 is the lot the lot 49 protocol um, mm-hmm. basically allowing lightning network over low latency um, mesh nets something that uh, Richard Myers is working on for the global mesh labs uh, company for trying to get that going. Um, do you have any opinion on, um, not so much on that in particular, but just like lightning network over mesh nets or other kind of uh, low latency kind of networks like that? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's definitely an interesting uh, use case. And I, I have been in touch with Richard for, well, over a year now. Um, and uh, he, he has found a couple of very, very interesting optimizations that we can do with L2 um, concerning the way that we, who signs what at what time. Um, it is not the case that we basically need to always sync up with each other, um, but we can defer some of the signatures being sent over the network, which is very much in line with the, uh, with the way that mesh networks work. Having this uh, more opportunistic way of communicating um, that that mesh networks are, which are the main challenge in, in mesh networks, is that sometimes you might not be there, um, and the bandwidth that is at your disposal is very limited. So we're talking we're talking a couple of couple of seconds to make to make a single update between two endpoints of a channel, and so. This kind of optimization is uh, was, was very much interesting uh, for Richard, and I was I was really happy to see that we can we can massively reduce the bandwidth that a Lightning network uses by switching over to to L2 instead of the current uh, LN penalty mechanism, which has a much more stringent uh, synchronicity requirement uh, than than L2 would have. So in in that sense, like that would make Bitcoin and Lightning even more inclusive and accessible to people that may not have 
traditional internet connections in a kind of really, I don't know if what the exact use case would be there, but something like that, someone where they don't have internet nearby and they're maybe using the mesh nets to connect to someone else that does maybe? Yeah, that's that's definitely the case. I mean, uh, the the simplest use case is to basically use the mesh network as if it were a uh, as if it were an internet, where we basically just communicate indirectly over a number of hops to some base station that is connected to the internet, or even among among multiple participants that are just connected by the mesh network. Um, but besides that, there is also the uh, this opportunistic. Uh, point of view where um, this mesh network might not be connected at the time that that you're transferring, and having somebody walk from from one part of the town to another part of the town might might temporarily bridge this uh, this uh, this connectivity by receiving some information that is destined for somewhere else uh, when when he crosses the sender location. And then he moves out of range, then moves towards the receiver location, and automatically we do then forward this uh, uh, this message by by just being in the vicinity or, or closer to the destination. And it's not like the whoever is carrying this information is actually uh, purposefully walking from from the sender to the destination, but he just happens to to choose or to to want to go in a similar direction. So you move the data a bit closer to the destination. And so there are a couple of scenarios where this is, this is very, uh, very interesting to consider. Um, uh, but hopefully the, the places where this is necessary will become fewer and fewer over time. And we, we can actually get, uh, get everybody on the, on the network. But I mean, I guess would it, would it make sense for like, let's say me, um, and maybe like a set of Bitcoiners that live in my local area to just have this, even though we have Internet as a way to be more private. Or is that since it's a, a broadcast mesh network, perhaps that wouldn't make sense. I'm I haven't really thought this through, to be honest. <laughs> ah, that's that's interesting. I've I've only ever considered it as a, as a way to extend the reach of the existing network to communities that might not have this uh, this kind of connectivity. Um, I don't know, uh, to be honest. Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> I guess I guess putting putting a radio beacon on your uh, on your hot wallet and uh, transmitting might not be the best idea, but uh, there might be techniques around that. So we're going to go ahead and move on from uh, mesh networks here. Just go to kind of uh, lightning network privacy in general and just kind of get your, your opinions. Uh, these are mainly from uh, Anthony here. Do you foresee an instance where the network isn't so vulnerable to probing channel balance attacks? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we are aware of of many of these uh, of these issues. Um, but before going into into specific attacks, I, I probably should mention that we do have a couple of uh, of uh, uh, constraints that we are optimizing for. The first and foremost one is is probably logically scalability and and the real time nature of of payments. Um, and secondly, is probably resilience. And maybe third is is privacy. So um, if we have to decide between between one of these dimensions, we probably are going to go for scalability over uh, privacy. 
I hope that explains a couple of these choices that we've made while developing uh, the specification and the, developing the protocol. To go back to your uh, to the uh, to your question about uh, probing uh, and countermeasures, I, I do think that we do, that we have pretty good uh, ideas on on how we might eventually end up uh, with a with a more private uh, system. I guess the easiest for us uh, to to implement is basically to. Uh, to wait for adoption to pick up because the more the more transfers that we send over a lightning channel the more uncertainty we are adding to uh, to whoever is probing us and the less uh, the 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 less they can collate information across channels so probing a channel uh, i.e. measuring how much one side of the uh, of the channel owns and how much the other side of the channel owns Take some time. It's not instantaneous, and especially at a distance, it uh, it might take uh, quite some time to accurately determine what the channel capacity is. And so, the more noise we can add to these links, uh, the more traffic we uh, we transfer over these uh, the, these channels, the more changes we have in a relatively short period of time. The more uncertainty we add to whoever is probing us, and so. I think the sheer act of performing payments actually helps us obscure the uh, the correlation between a uh, a change in balance on one channel and the change of balance in another channel because that's ultimately what we want, right? Uh, as probing attackers, we want to uh, we want to probe a channel and then we want to probe a neighbor's channel and then we want to probe another channel. And see, I have a very nice picture of, oh, there's 13 Satoshis being subtracted here. There's 13 being subtracted on the second channel, 13 on the third one. Oh, now we know that there was a single payment going through these three channels. And this, this collation is, is getting much, much harder if we add noise in the form of real payments, of fake payments, or adding uh, false bottoms, for example. So there is a proposal to randomly reject payments that would would have gone through to basically obscure the actual balance in the channels. That would, of course, add noise to and, and failures to actual payments as well. But um, there's a trade-off, I guess. I was kind of hearing that if, if Lightning Network got very, very popular, that in a sense that it would help with privacy just from the fact that there's more things going on and harder for people, harder for attackers to really see the true balance and see what's truly going on. Exactly. So it, it really is about introducing noise to the measurement that the attacker is, is performing. And the noisier the measurement is, the less information he can, can extract from that measurement. Exactly. Do you think something like rendezvous or route blinding will get put in place soon and help privacy route blinding as an alternative to rendezvous, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, I, I wrote up the specification for rendezvous, but it turned out to be a very interesting cryptographic trick, um, which took me a while to figure out and code it up. But uh, it turns out that uh, rendezvous, where you basically have the recipient send half the onion, describing a path from a public place in the network back to itself. And he sends this onion to the sender, and the sender basically prepends his, uh, his half 
path off from himself to this public meeting place is uh, is is very limited because the onion that the receiver creates is specific to the amount and to the uh, the path that is going to be taken and if we for example want to perform multi-part payments then we'd have to transfer for each part we would have to transfer a separate onion to the from the receiver to the sender so that the sender can then use them they're fundamentally not reusable that's the main issue route blinding on the other hand is uh, is basically a way for us to introduce aliases um, for channels so the way that we tell each hop in the network where to send uh, where to forward a payment is by telling them hey uh, please send x amount over this channel of yours as as defined by a so-called short channel id and uh, forward the the remainder of these instructions to the next node the problem here is that in order to do so we are basically telling the sender who the recipient is because the sender is constructing the entirety of the path and so the sender learns the identity of the recipient. Now, if the sender were to basically send a list of edges of half paths back to himself as a list of short channel IDs, that would still reveal sort of his the uh, uh, the destination. Um, but we can use aliases here as well. So the receiver sends a list of channel aliases to the sender and the sender then constructs a path from himself to the uh, to the public meeting place in the network and from there on uses the uses the aliases and so he can no longer look at the network graph and and sort of follow the the remainder of the path because they're using secret names for these these channels and it turns out that these secret names for channels are nothing else than encrypted short channel IDs that only the processing node can actually decrypt. And so this is uh, this is a mechanism where we can have the same effect as having rendezvous routing, where we basically have an encrypted onion that we send to the to the uh, to the sender. But instead of encrypting the entire onion, we just encrypt some little piece of information inside of that of that onion and therefore make it reusable because well if this this uh, thing is called a street we can we can use a street any number of times but if we get a one-time pass for a street then we can't use it multiple times and that's the same between between route blinding being just it's an alternative name for this this channel versus having a one-time pass, which is the rendezvous onion, basically. I think I actually understand those things now. <laughs> Are you aware of any other kind of, well, before I move on, how soon do you think we're likely to get that, uh, if that gets consensus or, you know, people, whatever? <laughs> um, so that always depends on uh, a bit on the um, on the specification process we have one rule which basically means that the um, any proposal remains in proposal stage until there's at least two independent implementations that's both for us to see whether the proposal is uh, self-contained 
namely that there isn't uh, some sort of assumption that can't be reconstructed from the proposal itself. Um, but it also serves as a um, as a vetting mechanism for us to see if a uh, if a specification proposal is uh, is really the best we can do. Um, there have been a number of proposals where we where one team proposed something and then another team came uh, came back and said, oh, if you change this this and this parameter, then it works much much better. Or Oh no! This whole proposal is uh, can be replaced by something much simpler or uh, something much more powerful, and so this is this is the pro- uh, process that that we currently have. I'm not actually sure what the current state of of rug blinding is, but uh, I think we do have a an experimental implementation of it, um, and we just need a second team to uh, to implement it. I don't know what uh, what the timeline for that looks like because I mean we're all small teams and we we all have our own priorities. So hopefully hopefully we will, we will get some traction on on that proposal sometime soon. But I can't promise anything. Just like Bitcoin, uh, it's always in two weeks. <laughs> TM, of course. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, are you aware of any other privacy enhancements coming down the pipeline anytime soon, even if it's years and years away? Well, what might not be years and years away is uh, is the use of new taproot primitives, which uh, are of course really exciting. Um, one of which is uh, obviously the taproot itself, which allows us to basically hide the on-chain traces much much more efficiently from uh, from uh, would-be snoopers. Um, something that I've done myself for the Lightning Network, uh, the Lightning Conference back in Berlin two years now, um, was basically to look at the blockchain and, and try to figure out where uh, where there were channels being open and where there were channels being closed. And since we are about the only users of pay-to-witness script hash, it wasn't all that hard to figure out. And that means that uh, that we also were able to to figure out uh, what the relate uh, what the balance of public channels and uh, unannounced channels is, and what the what the kind of closure types are, and uh, how many channels there are in total, um, and so this kind of uh, of on-chain trace is about to uh, to disappear as soon as we as we spec out the um, the transaction formats for Taproot itself, and once Taproot actually activates. Um, which is which is really cool because it makes unannounced channels a bit more private. Uh, not really saying that they are private uh, uh, at all in in the beginning, but we we can sort of hide our on-chain traces a bit better. The uh, second change, of course, is uh, the adoption of Schnorr, uh, which should allow us to not only reduce the size of uh, the transactions that we create and thus make it a bit cheaper. To open and close uh, channels, but uh, it also makes a couple of messages that we are uh, sending much much smaller. Uh, for example, one of the messages that we send out through the gossip layer of the uh, of the Lightning Network is the channel announcement, and that currently contains four signatures. And which nor we can reduce that to just one signature. So that's a massive bandwidth saving just there. Of course, if we talk about Schnorr, we can, we can talk uh, also talk about uh, having point lock, uh, point time lock contracts, um, which is similar to the hash time lock contracts, um, but it allows us to 
to change basically the payment hash, which is currently being used uh, identically across the entire lifetime of a payment, uh, PTLCs allow us to change that along, uh, not just along different attempts for multi-part payments, but also change it along a single path. Once we adopt PTLCs, uh, an attacker that is actively listening on the network and are actively participating has a much, much harder time to collate uh, observations he, mi uh, he might make. So um, currently it's, uh, it's that if uh, I'm an attacker and I'm sitting in, in the network and I receive a uh, uh, payment uh, to be forwarded for the hash ABC, and then I receive a second payment with the payment hash ABC, then I can say uh, with high probability that these are related. That uh, And then I can make some, some assumptions. Oh, it's coming sort of from this direction. Who is a plausible sender? And it's going in that direction. It's uh, so this guy is a plausible uh, receiver. And with PTLCs, they will just receive ABC one time and then uh, DEF the second time and not be able to, to sort of correlate the, these kinds of, uh, of informations anymore. Therefore, make it much, much uh, harder for an attacker to, to identify who is the sender and who is the origin or even what the amounts being transferred are. Um, because if uh, if I receive if I forward two uh, satoshis on one side and three on the other side with the same payment hash, I can say okay, the total transfer is at least five. If they are completely decorrelated by using different secrets, then uh, I cannot say okay, these two belong together, and so I also can't say what the total amount being sent is. I guess that's that's it for privacy. But what excites me about uh, about PTLCs and Schnorr signature as well is that we can finally have uh, a mechanism for aborting stuck payments. So um, currently, if uh, if I try to send a payment and it gets stuck somewhere because well the node just died or um, there's somebody holding on to to the payment being uh, that is in flight. I currently can't retry that payment. Uh, whereas with PTLCs, we can actually mix in a secret that is provided by the sender instead of just the recipient. And so the sender can say, oh, uh, this, this part is, is getting stuck. I will not act upon that anymore. I will not reveal my part of the secret. And so I know that this will eventually time out and come back to me. So I can just retry. Kind of just talking more broadly, do you think, kind of going back to privacy slightly here, do you think, you know, because you already kind of laid out that your priorities aren't privacy, it's, you know, the other two that you mentioned, the privacy being like the third in the line there. Um, would you say that being the case, is privacy on Lightning more of the responsibility or more weighted towards the protocol developers, or is it more on the app layer currently like just to find like uh, tricks to make people more private on lightning etc when i laid out the priorities i i didn't didn't mean that uh, that privacy is not not a priority but in most cases they are orthogonal and we can we can have uh we can have our cake and eat it too so it's it's not like like we ignore privacy completely uh I do think that um, in the end, it comes down to a combination of both uh, application developers and the protocol itself. Whenever possible, we 
do make uh, do make the protocol as private as possible. But in many cases, there are implementation details that uh, that uh, can be used to make it more private. Like for example, we can say that uh, any implementation is free to probe whatever channels they have. And by creating this additional traffic to learn about their surrounding, they can themselves help uh, make the measurements of a would-be attacker less precise and add randomness to them. So um, that's something that we could, for example, propose to to implementers but it's not really a protocol level decision to ma- to enable that there there's there's a couple of venues where the protocol can do quite a bit for uh for privacy like we uh, we mentioned before ptlcs um the obfuscation that we gain through taproot and uh the uh, the sort of uh route blinding that uh, that we have proposed as well but uh, we can only go so far. And so at some point, the implementations themselves need to, need to start taking care of, of using good practices to, to aid this, uh, the privacy of not just themselves, but also the rest of the network as well. So I think I'm going to move on from privacy and kind of head towards the end of the show here. Um, so basically two final questions. First question would be... Um, I like to try to think about things as intellectually as possible, intellectually honestly as possible. Um, and so could you paint me a pessimistic picture of where you think Lightning Network is going to go? I promise I'm going to ask you about the optimistic <laughs> of path next. I, I totally agree. We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be fanboys and, and just uh, paint the rosy pictures only. So... Um, yes, uh, th- there are a couple of things that uh, that keep me awake at night, uh, so to speak. Um, for example, I don't know if if the Lightning Network will ever uh, have this this massive adoption that uh, that everybody is is hoping for. It might just just get stuck at some point, and we might we might go back on uh, on running just on chain, though. I, I think that the Lightning Network does have some attractive uh, points that uh, that warrant its existence going into the future as well. The other scenario that uh, that I um, that I can see is that we we seem to be creating a lot of hype when it comes to um, to routing uh, nodes and and sort of creating these huge expectations when it comes to to operating a routing node is that uh, that you can basically make a passive income out of uh, out of these routing nodes and when this sort of excitement and hype dies down that we're left with a network that is that is just a shadow of itself basically and so I think we should we should start uh, start managing expectations much much more and stop uh, promising that uh, that there is free money falling from the sky um, if if you just set up a routing node and so um, yeah I I find that uh, that going into this uh, in a much more honest way and saying hey uh, you should be running a, a lightning node because you are gaining some utility from it maybe you can you can pay quickly for for something that you'd like to buy or you can receive payments so the utility is in running the node and not running it for somebody else so it feels it feels a bit 
uh, disingenuous to sort of uh, get get everybody to uh, excited about running their own routing node when really they should be excited about running a node for their own good. Um, it also feels a bit like the uh, like the gold rush where the people making the money were not the ones uh, digging the money but the ones uh, selling the shovels. So that's one of then that's one of my fears, so to speak. <laughs> Gotcha. So uh, it's it's better to be one selling the nodes than the one running the node here. Um, okay. I mean, I think I would kind of agree there. Um, I think I got my start on Lightning a couple years ago, thinking, "Ah, oh, man, I'm going to make all kinds of money routing," and I've not made all of that much. Um, I'm also not trying super hard. There's definitely people out there that spend a great deal of time optimizing and figuring out all the little intricacies and everything of actually being a routing node. So, you know, it's like, like the kind of same kind of thing with Bitcoin. You know, it, it kind of fools you into thinking it's a get rich, uh, get rich quick scheme. But once you're in, you start to see all the other valuable things that are present and you just stay because you actually want to be valuable to this network, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if uh, if you're if you're investing loads of time into optimizing your node, is it then still fair to call it passive income? Right. <laughs> so kind of on that flip side, though, um, what do you think is the happy path for the Lightning Network in the next couple of years here? The happy path is for me to to have a uh, slow but steady uh, adoption of uh, of more and more lightning as we learn about the characteristics of uh, of the lightning network and um, and we learn about how to run nodes but also how to how to run uh, senders and receivers a steady increase in the usability of of lightning of course. We would like to to eventually be able to hide a lot of the details from the end user, such that uh, such that the barriers to entry become smaller and smaller, and that goes hand in hand with a slow and steady adoption as well, right? As we bring down the barriers to entry, we can reach more and more people. Um, I don't think that we we are going to have an explosive growth just because some world event happened uh, at some point. Um, and it's also much better for uh, for the Lightning Network um, to grow in a, in a steady fashion because the uh, the structure of the network takes time to settle. Um, but also for us developers, it's uh, uh, it gives us the ability to react to things emerging as uh, as uh, as we as users onboard to the to the system itself and. It helps us avoid a situation where we have a sudden influx of users um, that have a really frustrating experience with with the Lightning Network, and then uh, sort of um, jump off of the whole Bitcoin and Lightning va- wagon with a with a deep resentment for the technology because when they first tried it, it didn't work out right. Um, and so I think. This slow and steady pace is what we should should be going for, and I think that that we are on a good track to to uh, to get there. Okay, I lied. I have one more question. <laughs> what would you say to people out there that are interested in Bitcoin, that are interested in the Lightning Network, and are just kind of overwhelmed by the things that they could do to help Bitcoin or help Lightning Network? Do you have any words for them or any encouraging? Uh, 
ideas or anything of that nature? I think feeling overwhelmed in, a, uh, in the face of all of what is happening with Bitcoin and Lightning is, uh, is kind of natural. Um, I remember myself having to read the paper like three times, the Bitcoin white paper about three times before sort of grokking it. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not like one of these uh, stories where the first time I saw it, I, it was, made total sense to me and, and I was blown away. No, it, it took some time for me as well. I've been on a steady learning trip for the last 12 years. So um, I definitely do see that, that, there, is, there, that there is quite, quite an impressive amount of, of literature out there and stuff that, that you, might, you might want to learn. My suggestion is to, to take it easy, pick something that, is, that interests you personally as well, and sort of try to explore uh, based on that interest itself. It doesn't make sense to sort of try to force through something that, uh, that doesn't, doesn't interest you at all. So um, always put your interests first and then, and then the rest will follow, I guess. Let your intuitions guide you, basically. Exactly, yeah. Alrighty. Well, I think I'm going to go ahead and call that the end of the show there. I really appreciate all of those answers. Before we actually close out, could you just let the listeners know how they could find you on the internets and all that? Um, yeah, so uh, I'm uh, a snike on Twitter, uh, S-N-Y-K-E. And uh, that's probably the best place to reach out to me. Um, otherwise I'm also on IRC and a couple of, uh, of other slacks, but, uh, yeah, probably Twitter. All right. Perfect. Uh, just to let the listeners know if you enjoy this episode or you want to listen to two future episodes while supporting the show, you can find us on breeze wallet by searching lightning junkies. You can also go to lightningjunkies.net forward slash support to find different ways of supporting us there. Um, so I really appreciate you joining me on the show, Christian, and I hope yeah. you have a good rest of your day. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, was a pleasure. And as far as everyone else, I will see you on the lightning network. Boom. That was the 47th episode of the Lightning Junkers podcast. That sounds terrible. I don't know why I'm doing that guys. Anyway. I, I hope you enjoyed that episode. That one was one of my favorite episodes. I didn't anticipate Christian being so eloquent, or maybe I should have. Uh, I don't know. Just a quick reminder that you can support the podcast by listening to us on Breeze Wallet or at the many other value-for-value value apps you can find at newpodcastapps.com. For other ways to support the podcast, please visit lightningjunkies.net forward slash support. There you find the places to listen and subscribe to the podcast, as well as a few different ways to send us Bitcoin or Bitcoin over the Lightning Network. Help keep this podcast ad-free and support us today. I fucking, I, I read the shit out of that. Anyway, uh, I love y'all. I'll see you on the Lightning Network.